Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Dr. Kiki's Science Hour is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Dr. Kiki's Science Hour, and I'm Jerry Ellsworth, sitting in for Dr. Kiki today. This is episode 86. It's March 10th, 2011. From supermodel to bioengineer. This is Dr. Kiki's Science Hour, and I'm Jerry Ellsworth, sitting in for Dr. Kiki while she's on maternity leave. If you haven't heard already, Dr. Kiki and her brand new beautiful baby boy are doing well and healthy, so we're very happy for her. My guest today is jo- Joanne Manister. Did I get that right, Joanne? Yes, you did. Hey! <laughs> the yes, lovely and talented Joanne Manister. <laughs> you may also know her as the science goddess uh, on different blogs around the internet. She's a bio- biology and a bioengineering lecturer at the University of Illinois. She had a passion for science since she was very young, although she had a very interesting twist in her life when, at the age of 14, she was discovered as a fashion model. She toured around the world and modeled for a few years and then went on to college. Her favorite science topics are histology, the study of tissue under a microscope, and manipulation of mammalian tissue cells in a culture dish so they can help discover new drugs and new ways to help the body regenerate. Besides her work at the university, Joanne volunteers at many uh, outreach, um, science outreach events such as Game Camp, First Robotics, Science Olympiad, Science Online, Kids Read Science. She also produces an educational video series and a blog on her website, joannelovescience.com, that are geared for both younger and older audience. She may not know, but she's also most wanted in over 15 states, including Guam, for her (laughs) inhumane torture of gummy bears. I knew they were going to come back at me there and get me on that one. (laughs) She tortures gummy bears. Joanne, it's great to have you on. Thank you Hopefully for I didn't uh, asking me on. Bio too much. <laughs> so today no. um, we talked about um, discussing science education in the United States, but really I think it would be great to learn more about you and maybe see if we can just tie it all together and, and see how, it, um, how your upbringing fits with uh, um, your take on teaching science. So you were, oh, yeah. you were very, very nerdy, um, you said, from a, a young age. Tell me about that. I mean, how did well, you know? Uh, well, I definitely was one of those kids that read all the time, and that's because my mom read all the time. And that's what was out there. Uh, and when our family moved to Guam, uh, I, all year long, you have this beautiful weather uh, with which to explore in, and my parents were just pretty laissez-faire, whatever you want to do. So I'd go explore the boonies for hours on end. Uh, They also had a great encyclopedia set. And I read that, but not the whole thing. So I don't want to be branded as the girl who read the encyclopedia. But, uh, (laughs) and now I wonder if anybody could say, yeah, I've read all of Wikipedia. Whereas there used to be kids that could say, I could read the whole encyclopedia set. But um, anyway, so I just spent a lot of time exploring nature and just the fascination, especially with medicine. So my original goal was to go into medicine. 
I didn't know. And a at what age scientist. was this that you knew? Um, well, by fifth grade, I knew I wanted to go into science be or to medicine. Um, but before that, it was astronomy. And I think a lot of kids oh. like astronomy, don't they? Because uh, it's just you walk outside and there it is. And it's amazing and beautiful. Um, but yeah, by fifth grade, I wanted to go into science. So that was a singular goal all the way through about junior year of college. And uh, so I just kept, uh, kept studying. Um, just I was very shy, very quiet, kept to myself. And uh, yeah, as far as the modeling goes, I'm just sitting in a lunchroom, minding my own business, you know, maybe talking to friends, maybe reading a book. I don't even remember because the shock of someone coming up and saying, you can model was enough to have me forget. Well, were they just like happening. trolling around the lunchroom looking for models at your school or? I guess so. I guess they just really? popped in on occasion. It was an all girls Catholic school. Um, ah. So, you know, I guess all you're going to see are girls. So they, they popped in. And, and this was uh, still Guam? Yes, it was. So, and yeah, so I was just this tall, skinny, nerdy girl. I had really big glasses and uh, stringy hair and bad posture. And uh, it, it solved that. That was sort of cool. And um, I, you, despite my disbelief, um, it, you know, I was raised by very practical parents. And in my mind, I heard, ah, dollars for college. Uh, yeah, we'll do this. So uh -huh. I, I was really glad to do it um, for that aspect, but uh, it was not very intellectually challenging. And yeah, I was going to ask, what were the other kids like? I'm assuming that you were there with the other younger models. Um. Yeah, so um, I, I do have some uh, funny stories, and my favorite one was in Tokyo. And uh, Tokyo, especially in the summer, attracts models from all around the world. So you strike up a conversation by saying, "Where." are you normally modeling or where are you from? And I said something like, oh, well, I'm just here. I'm on my way to uh, college so then I can become a doctor. And one gal sitting at the table just goes, wow, you must be smart. <laughs> <laughs> and I was oh, like, my. oh no. <laughs> <laughs> so did, it, did your grade slide or anything when you were doing all this modeling and travel, jet setting around the world? You know, there's lots of time to read, so they oh. didn't. They didn't. I was able to keep up. So yeah, yeah, I was glad. I get. I guess I couldn't have it any other way. That I, you know, I want to keep up with my work. So, um, it, you know, it's funny because then I went to college, kept up with the modeling just a little bit, but then decided, you know, nope, I'm going to be serious about science. I don't want people to know I modeled. You How know. old were you when you um, quit modeling and went off to college full time? Um, so 18. So I modeled okay. four years, 14 to 18. Um, and I, I could have kept going. And there's a part of me that wished I had taken another year and continued, but um, it was fine. You know, so then I got to college and just began studying biology. Um, by about junior year, uh, said, oh, wow, I don't think I want to be a doctor. Um, I got to work in a lab and that changed everything. And then there was a professor who said, would you like to teach for me? And that that really changed a lot of things. Uh, I discovered I was actually pretty good at teaching. So, uh, uh, like how? How did you? Um, how did you know this? Just because um, you enjoyed it, or how do you? How do you know you're a good teacher? Oh, that, actually, that's a very good segue question, isn't that? Um, I was uh, well. Oddly enough, when I was modeling, I did have a chance to teach at a modeling and finishing school. 
And I did that and enjoyed that. So when you know you feel that little buzz, like, I think I'm doing the right thing. I think that's Is it like a good adrenaline? Indicator. Yeah, yeah. And uh, when you know kids respond to you, you know they've got it. You know they understood what you said. Uh, you know, or, you know, they'll give you gifts or something like that, which is nice. I suppose they could do that if you're mean. We had to do that with our algebra teacher in middle school. But um, <laughs> to, to make sure she, she was in a good mood, she would have like 10 apples on her desk. Uh, oh, my goodness. <laughs> we'd all bring her apples. Um, but anyway, the, um, uh, when it came to the college teaching, it was, again, it was that buzz. And it was like, wow, this, this is really what I want to do. I, you know, I was really good at uh, doing things in the lab, but also being able to explain to other people and why we're doing these things. And so actually that's why I, was, I pursued a PhD was simply because I wanted to teach this level of students. I wanted to teach college students because um, I got a kick out of the higher level science. And did you ever have any doubt along the way? Any kind of like rocky roads uh, during this period? Uh, as far as whether I would teach or not, no. No. I, once I started teaching, I just knew I would always want to teach. I, the only doubts I ever had was, where will I get to teach? Will there be a position that I really like? And I knew I wanted to teach higher level science. I like basic biology, but I really wanted to teach the higher level where the innovation was. So I could always um, be going, oh, look at this latest thing going on. Um, and I like that. Um, but then as, as my career progressed and I was doing that, I also found a lot of satisfaction by reaching out to younger people as of course I started to have my own children. And so I have four, uh, a boy who's 19, a girl who's 17, almost a girl who's 15 and a boy who's 11. So as they were growing, I started to understand more. How do you reach children uh, at different ages? You know, how do they think about the world? And I feel like I started to really incorporate that into the way I would describe science. And I'd become more comfortable talking about science with different age groups, not just college students. Um, did so, all your kids turn into scientists? Well, you know, Chris, that remains to be seen. But my <laughs> oldest is, um, he is in atmospheric sciences and he works for the USGS as an intern. So he's a geological services there. And um, my second daughter wants, says for now, she wants to be a chemist or a chemistry teacher. And that, that actually was uh, provided because she lost all respect for her chemistry teacher in high school because the chemistry teacher had said, uh, bragged about failing math and did oh. not, she didn't enjoy her teacher very much. And she, I, I think there was just something in her that said, you know, I could do this better. <laughs> but like I said, she's still got a ways to go. So I don't know for sure. Although today, uh, something was funny. I, I happened to pick up um, all the kids, bring them home, even the college aged one. And the, my daughter just, she dumps all her books and she goes, oh, I hate circuits. And oh, what? <laughs> no. Yes, yes, I know. So she's learning circuits and physics. And it turns Being out. Being an electrical engineer, that just like rubs my hair the wrong way. What? <laughs> well, and then, then the oldest, he's in, um, he's in uh, physics and electricity and magnetism, I guess is the theme. And he says, oh, you don't know what I have to deal with with circuits. <laughs> and I just said, oh, I really got to get a plane ticket and fly Jerry Ellsworth out here. We'll get you straightened out. 
That's right. I'll straighten them right out. We'll, uh, Although I think I will go find some of your videos and see what, uh, you know. Um, yeah. well, you might you watch out for the videos where I'm burning things and blowing things up. I like that. I don't know. <laughs> I like that. So do you, do you think um, getting kids interested in science, do you think it's important that the parents have an active role? Or do you think it's possible that uh, kids can do it on their own? Well, I would say um, I did mine all on my own, but I don't think I was very typical. I, I never had, so when I decided I was going to be a doctor, there was nothing else I thought about being. So I think, you know, a lot of kids go through times where they're not sure what they're going to do with their lives, but I always knew it was going to be something in science and that never, ever changed even if you know exactly what I was gonna do changed. But um, definitely, I think definitely parents have an important role because as you go through school, your teachers change and some are interested in science and some are not. And um, so somebody has to have that curiosity and interest and even like my parents this sort of go ahead and explore and do whatever it is you want or you know, um, my parents, you know, they would take me to museums, but they never really said, here, why don't you do this or guide me in projects? They just sort of let me explore. Um, uh, you know, or they never overtly said, we'll provide you whatever you need to explore. Uh, you were just left on your own to figure it out. But do you have any advice for parents that maybe don't know the topic of, uh, you know, the subject that their kids want to explore and learn? And Well, I... My advice is, uh, is just, first of all, that it's wonderful. The way uh, things are set up, you can go to the library and you can get DVDs produced by National Geographic and NOVA. Um, and you can, you know, uh, get to things online. And you can definitely get to museums. Museums are always a wonderful way to uh, help kids explore whatever it is they want to explore. And of course, I'm standing here as a representative of science, but. <laughs> I'm like, if any of my kids came up and said, well, you know, I want to know about Jane Austen, I'd be like, sure, let's go, let's go see what we can find online. Let's go find books. Let's go find, uh, you know, some documentary about her. Let's get you what you need to be excited. And I think you can take whatever it is your child is interested in and use that as the springboard to help them learn other things. I actually homeschooled all my kids up till about second or third grade. Uh, wow, and you then, did this while also teaching? Yes. <laughs> wow. So I did. How did you manage that? I mean, that's an interesting story schedule. in itself. Flexible schedule. Uh, this just came about because I didn't even know about homeschooling, and someone was showing off their new house, and they said, "And this is the room I school my children in." And they said, "You can do that." And uh, so each state is different as far as. Uh, what you can do for homeschooling, what qualifications the parents need, if any, you know, what, so in Illinois, you must teach in English and um, you must follow Illinois state guidelines. Um, so hopefully you're meeting all the guidelines that the state has set out. Um, so in the early years, it's pretty easy because you got to hit certain, you know, the reading at this level, um, but the students don't have to take any tests. But uh, this, what happened with homeschooling was it gave me the opportunity because I'm only dealing with a few kids at a time is to say, I know that this one loves geography. And so why don't we learn to read, practice reading things on the topic he really, really likes, which is geography. So, you know, whatever topic it was, we would explore math and reading and, you know, all the basics 
you know, in writing. So when he had to practice handwriting, it would be up on the topic of geography, whether it's copying sentences or listening to me. Yeah, um, so, so everything revolved around one topic. Um, did, did you find that um, your kids were maybe spending less time than an, an average like public school kid would spend? I mean, for me, it felt like going to school was kind of like a prison. I had to go there very early in the morning, stay into the afternoon, and then, you know, maybe do some kind of after-school event until my father got home, um, just to keep me busy all the time. How did? How, how much did time I, did you devote? I guess is what I'm asking. Well, the great thing is, uh, you know, I was able to split it with their dad, and uh, so I, he would work with them while I would go to. Uh, go teach and then I would come home and take care. So we switched off that way and that worked out really, really well. Um, especially because I would take certain topics and he would take certain topics. So it was a divide and conquer. Uh, and yeah, I, I think it was good. The kids got to know both of us really, really well. Uh, but um, they do, I would say on average, spend less time. Um, you know, they're on task, uh, they get things done. And you know, some days you can intuitively tell maybe they don't feel well. You save it till the next day. There's a lot of flexibility. Whereas if you're in school, the kids just sort of sometimes have to endure. Uh, mm -hmm. Of course, if you have a wonderful teacher, of course, that just changes everything. But still, one teacher with 20 to 30 kids uh, still leaves less time for um, a one-on-one -on -one interaction. Uh, however, of course, now my kids are in public school, the ones in college. But, uh, you know, I did eventually see, oh, I couldn't do it all. I wasn't wanting to do it all. I think that's the main thing. Um, and uh, then just say, you know, uh, I need to trust other people can help and keep, I'll, I'll keep an eye on my kids. If they're missing something, I'll pop right in to help them out. And now it's sort of great because they all, they got to spend a lot of time together. Um, I think, you know, I'm pretty close to my kids. Uh, they're close to each other. Uh, so they, they had this opportunity to know each other better. And uh, mm -hmm. I love to listen to, so especially the, the one who's in high school in physics will always call on her brother because he's actually going to end up with a physics minor by the time he's done with everything. And uh, she's like, can you help me? <laughs> so I don't even have to do that. It's great. So what are the, the, the traits of, say, a good uh, um, elementary through high school teacher? Do you have any opinion on that? Um, yeah, I think I do. Um, uh, first of all, I would say, um, elementary school is, of course, when they're very young and the, the kids are so enthusiastic, right, about everything. They're curious. Um, if someone hasn't squashed the curiosity out of them, um, they ask a lot of questions. And this is the perfect time for them to be introduced to science, uh, you know, to, to explore new things and to have the teacher really help them along. Um, the, the issue I see a lot of times is that elementary school teachers often aren't science trained. They tend to be more humanities based. They might come from a humanities background. So reading uh, more literature or history. And so very few feel confident in science. And uh, firsthand, I saw this even with my children in classrooms, uh, even gifted and talented classrooms. If I would pop by and visit uh, for valid reasons and um, the teachers would be doing science themes and I would come in, you would see them sort of freeze like, am I doing it wrong? And of course, it's not like I'm no. a threatening person where I'm going to come and say, hmm, how about we do it this way? Uh, 
you know. So, so they almost um, need to, to let their ego go a little bit and, and accept that they maybe don't know some of these these concepts and learn and, with the kids. Exactly. And I actually spent some time speaking with uh, science teachers, high school science teachers, and asking their opinions. And uh, one had a great idea. She said, wouldn't it be wonderful if the elementary school teachers could work with some of the high school teachers, uh, the, the science high school teachers, to, to get ideas, to get training, to get support. Um, but sometimes when you're teaching, there's not a lot of time to, to work together like that. But um, my personal opinion about science education is, boy, we've got to get them understanding it when they're young. And, uh, you know, that, that's going to be a big important thing for a teacher to do. And it's very hard then if the teacher is uh, insecure about their science knowledge. And I don't know about you as far as engineering and people you encounter, but definitely when I see people, um, that, oh, you teach science. I was never good at science. You know, yeah, I hear similar things too. Yeah, so so I think that that's really prevalent, and so if they're not confident, then it just creates a vicious cycle. You know, or is there a, a stigma about science that? Uh, I mean, there's a reason that people are saying, "Well, I'm not good at that," or "I'm just not," you know, "I'm not good at math," or it, it's almost disparaging. I when I hear some people talk about it, is it just kind of cultural? Well, I, and I don't know if it always used to be that way. That would be an interesting thing to discover. When did uh, people start to say, I'm not good at science and I'm not good at math? Like, was there ever a time in our country where people would say, sure, you know, I know, I know it. I feel confident about it. Um, that's actually a very good question. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know the answer to that, but I do know people do that. And, and that, but I think what we've set up now is uh, teachers who won't teach science because they don't have confidence. The parents will, you know, uh, will say, oh, I don't know if I could help because I can't. I wasn't good at science. I wasn't good at math. But the thing is, there are so many resources out there now to get assistance, I think, online or whatever. Um, but I think the parents do need to have more of an enthusiastic, open um, quality about the lives of their kids to mm -hmm. ensure that they're allowed to explore. Um, so what about high school and beyond? Uh, what do you think about science um, teachers and teaching at uh, that level? The high school level. Well, I've had a lot of great experiences. Um, well, my high school, uh, I, I remember my science teachers, but I don't remember being particularly overexcited about science. Like, I, I don't think I had a, such a teacher that I went, oh, wow, because I was already decided I liked science. So it was all fine. I think you could have given me anybody and it would have been okay. Um, and my, my kids so far in high school have had pretty good teachers, I think, except my daughter's chemistry teacher really annoyed her uh, <laughs> more than any, anything. And I, well... You know, it looks like you got to stick with her for a semester and then you'll move on to the next teacher. So um, the, because my kids have had great teachers, um, I haven't really had to step in, except when they come home, I'll listen to whatever project they're doing, making a car that moves only exactly so many um, meters, uh, building a trebuchet to <laughs> catapult things. Uh, 
So I, I think uh, it's, it's been a good experience for me. So, but I do know a lot of uh, kids are forced, and I've seen this in middle school. If the teacher is teaching something outside their area, so even though they're a science teacher, they were trained to teach science, and maybe they're trained to teach biology, maybe they end up teaching earth science, or maybe they end up teaching uh, chemistry, and that happens a lot, then you can also see a little bit of lack of confidence. And that can be translated into, well, let me just have them read the chapter in the book, do these worksheets, I'll turn on this video, and that's it. And then there's no magic, there's no demonstrating, there's no projects going on because the teacher is a little overwhelmed uh, just trying to deal with a new topic themselves. But then there are also the magical teachers who could do just about anything that you give with them. But I do see what, what makes my own kids uh, spark up, what makes the college students I work with spark up is when they see uh, they can get their hands into something and they can mm -hmm. do something. And suddenly everything makes sense because they've related it to, to working with it, something to real life. And I think sometimes you have to reach certain uh, parts of the crowd by saying, um, looking at science, technology, and society, relating that all together. How does this help people? How does this improve the world? Or, you know, for, for those deeper thinkers, like, well, how, how is society impacting the world maybe negatively? Um, let's consider the ethics of these issues. So I think you really just need to find the way the kids are thinking and reach in and, and you know, work with that. With our joking around on Twitter last night, it was very, um, very interesting. All the tweets we started getting back when you tweeted um, asking people what their best high school teacher, science teacher experience was. And it seemed to me that probably 80% of the best experiences were either um, some kind of hands-on exciting experiments like throwing a big ball of um, elemental sodium into water and watching it explode, or um, the teacher took the time to um, say something or, or do something very personal with them, like compliment them or or, or tell them a joke. Yeah, and I, no. I noticed that too. That was that was an incredible insight. Uh, it doesn't surprise me that a great demonstration, something that explodes, or something that's a lot of guts. There were a lot of eyeballs and guts being brought <laughs> up, uh, and <laughs> so uh, or or this thing where the the teacher says, "Go go over there, get these two things, come back and mix it." You know, where the, you the teacher has said, "I trust you to go do that." You know, go go do it, come back and mix it, and you know, tell me what happens. Uh, I think it, so. This um, this level of caring, this level of trusting, this level of knowing what kids are capable of. And I think mm -hmm. that makes a big difference for kids. It's almost and, and like a, treating them for an as an adult the first time, it seems like. I kind of think back to some of my teachers that treated me with respect, unlike some of the other ones that just saw me as the bad kid. Um, I, I seem to like them, I mean, the, the ones that treated me like an adult better. Yeah, I think that goes a long way in any situation, even in a job. Uh, so, <laughs> it, it, you know, I was thinking about the, the um, other things where people were surprised where they said, oh, their teacher drank something and then they threw up. 
And I thought, like, you know, that's just one of those surprising, shocking moments that sticks in your head. And, uh, you know, that the fact that your teacher would, you know, go ahead and do that just <laughs> to get their attention. And I think I, well, I'm not for sure, but I don't think there's a lot of pedagogical papers written about um, entertaining the students, you know, that this is a great teaching technique. You do need to capture their attention. They do want to be entertained. They want to see what's fun about science. I think before then they'll say, you know, let me explore that more. So what do you think about the college setting? Um, I don't have a lot of experience in this area, but I've seen and gone to some lectures where there's hundreds of people out in an auditorium and there'll be one, uh, one person up there talking about a subject very little interaction, just one hour of absorb this information with 400 other people. <laughs> right. So I've done my share of lecturing in front of a class. Uh, I do try to make it uh, a little light and funny on occasions. And, and those are great teachers, aren't they? That the ones that can, I don't know if you've been to some classes where some really great teachers who really engage and aren't afraid to stop the lecture and ask a question and, and get feedback from students. But yes, there's a lot who say, uh, you know, I got to use that whole hour or I'm not going to get all this information into your heads. So write furiously um, and take it all down. So this is just the teacher transmitting knowledge to the students and it's not, not really engaging. Um, so definitely, I think, well, if, if you're in your major, if you're in biology or chemistry, you definitely are going to be taking some labs. And that's important. And that's, of course, what I've taught for the past 20 years are labs. Uh, so I sort of had my uh, hands in, um, you know, doing good science, getting people excited about science because they were actually doing it. And I was there to help them along. Um, I've done my share of lectures, um, but I think some people don't absorb lectures very well. They do need to be hands on. But I think that's even more important, getting people into labs who are not going to major in science. So those types of classes that are physics for poets, right? <laughs> um, you know, I, I forget what else they call them, but you know, they're, they're meant for non-majors. <clears throat> but the, the worst thing you could do for those people is to just stand up there and lecture. You really need to say science is meaningful in your life. You might have to make a decision based on knowing this science, based on knowing some of these properties of stem cells, based on knowing something about the climate. You know, how do we know the earth is warming or not? Um, so, so that, you know, you, you make it very relevant to them. But I think also giving the, them the hands-on would be really wonderful. Is there anything supplemental uh, a professor can do in the college environment to, um, to kind of help these people that maybe don't uh, work in the lecture um, environment very well? Well, I mean, I you have office hours, right, and yes. uh, teaching assistants, but how many I, feel comfortable to actually go and, and visit with you during this time? Well, that's really true. I think a lot of that has to do with the personality and, and what kind of um, persona the, the professor is setting forth. So if you seem like, you know, I'm here for you, I care that you learn the material, um, come visit me, you know, send me an email. Let, you know, be sure to come by and talk. I, th I think that has to do more with the personality of the professor. And there have been some um, incredible stories, not just at the college level, but at the high school level of 
transformative teachers. And one aspect of transformative teachers is one that they instill the vision that these kids can do this. So you can do this science, you can do whatever it is uh, you're trying to instill. You can make it to college, for instance. But the other thing is that they make themselves available and they say, I'm here for you. Here's my phone number. Here's my email. I'll be here on Saturdays. Come here. Let's help you meet your goals. Um, so I, I, I don't know exactly what else to add to that. <laughs> so tell me a bit about the outreach that you're doing. It, it seems to me that you might be, you know, in the forefront of transforming like science education through all of these uh, mentoring programs you're working with and all your online videos and, and your website and whatnot. Oh, so yeah, I do a lot of outreach. Some of the things I, I'm involved with, with have been around for a very long time. Science Olympiad starts at the school level and you have an enthusiastic parent or teacher or group of them who helps students train, be ready for this competition that then runs at the regional, state, and the national level. I have um, oh, helped what do they do? This. Oh, well, so you can explore any area of science you want. Um, so you do need to spend a day or two a week after school, um, and then they just explore science more in depth. And then they, um, then they compete. So they go to the regionals and there's a little test, usually a practical test. They have to walk around. They might have to mix chemicals and guess what that compound is. I would always be involved with cell biology or genetics or something called bioprocess, like how do scientists take measurements and interpret graphs and things like that. Um, so I always worked at the state level, so I never really got involved in the schools. I sort of felt like, oh, maybe that's not exactly fair for one school to have the state level coordinator um, helping them. <laughs> So I did that. I've helped people with science fair projects uh, at a very high level, uh, and that's a lot of fun. And um, so the other thing I do that brings a lot of um, excitement to my life is help with this girls engineering camp. And we uh, bring in middle school girls. We have multiple topics. And I and teach this is the one called games? Games, girls, adventures, and math and engineering sciences. And uh, I'm in charge of the bioengineering portion. So we do take more higher level middle school girls because uh, we are working with cells. We talk about biomechanics. We talk about, um, you know, what what do engineers do that's different from scientists? Um, you know, they, they want to Oh, I'd be interested things. in hearing this. What is the difference between a scientist <laughs> and an engineer coming from the engineering background? <laughs> right. Well, and in, in my time when working with bioengineering and then with this engineering camp, I've really come to appreciate what engineers do versus scientists. So I always feel like scientists are like, oh, look, a butterfly. Let me go explore that and learn that a little more. So, you know, it's more empirical. We're going to go see how something works, uh, understand what's going on. And an engineer will say, hmm, we have a problem and I think I can help solve that problem. So you, you, <laughs> you say, okay, my end product is something that measures the level of oxygen in a blood. So I need to know something about blood and how can we measure that, you know? So, you know, how do we do this painlessly? How do we do this inexpensively? And so that's another thing about engineering, which I think you probably know is you, you can't just dream up anything. You do need to dream up something practical that's uh, cost effective, um, <laughs> that, that won't take forever in R&D, for instance. So, um, and then I always like to laugh every time I go speak with an engineer, they always draw a graph on the board for some reason. <laughs> 
<laughs> time over <laughs> exactly anything. <laughs> anything i can relate to that okay <laughs> so and, uh, all these things like uh um games and first and science olympiad are, are they fully funded are they getting all the funding they need or is there um do you ever feel any frustration that you can't do everything that you want due to money oh that that's a really good question i've not had to be on the funding side i've been always recruited to help science olympiad is definitely volunteering uh, first is volunteering. Um, first, I believe, has a lot of corporate support. Of course, this, this was first set out by Dean Kamen, uh, the guy who first invented the Segway. Uh, so this is his project. Um, so I think they have a lot of corporate support. Um, Science Olympiad, I know, was looking for support. They were hoping to win that uh, challenge. Uh, I don't want to advertise the company, but, you know, so they were looking for funds. Uh, the girls engineering camp uh, is supported partly by the university and, of course, partly by some of the um, stipend the girls pay. So um, there, I think I see a struggle for people to continually have money. And, you know, then you see things where companies have pulled out of uh, sponsoring science fairs. And you need money to help those things run smoothly, to rent the space, to to get information out. And um, so, so I know there's money definitely wanting, people are wanting to, to continue these projects. That seems a little sad that that companies can't, um, you know, cut free with a little bit of money, you know, for these different programs when they're flying around in their corporate jets or... <laughs> Or, or getting Super Bowl ads. You know, it seems more important to me that we have a generation of engineers here in the United States than, um, than I don't know, a bunch of football players that are only going to be uh, um, around for a couple years. And I don't know I, where well, I was going with that. Well, that's okay. I agree with that. I, when I, and it's a good thing I can't remember the company. Although um, they probably could stand a little uh, like advertising that says, why did you do that? Uh, take your money away. Uh, I tend to agree. Um, uh, there are a lot of people, though, who do a lot of outreach um, from the bottom of their hearts. They put on science shows and they make sure they volunteer at the children's museums and uh, things like that. My website, I get nothing yeah, for tell, that. <laughs> tell us about some of the stuff you're doing on your website. You have some great videos. You have lists of books and blogs and, and, it's, and it's just all out there for free. Yes, it, yeah, it is all out there for free. And in fact, I pay a little bit of money to keep my website up too, just a tiny bit. So the um, the videos, well, actually I started my blog because I was writing a stem cell and tissue engineering newsletter for my college students and anybody interested. And I sort of got, oh, I hate putting a whole letter together each month. Maybe if I do a blog, I could just, oh, here's a cool story, put it up. And then what happened was um, my students would say, oh, you should do podcasts that was sort of the thing at the time and um, <clears throat> I just couldn't imagine myself doing that so, but then one day I, I got a video camera and I thought what could I talk about and the funny thing was I thought about Dr. Kiki and I said well I don't want to step on her turf and <laughs> do what she's doing so I gotta I you know I there's surely something where I can differentiate myself do do what I do well and the funny first thing I did was I thought I just read a great book so I told about that book 
and that has taken off these little book reviews. Um, I don't even say reviews. I want to just say recommendations because I'm always really positive and, um, you know, here, this, this book exists. You might want to check it out. This is what about. Check it out. Um, well, you so just I really did a video on the, the Science of Kissing, right? Um, reviewed yes. that book. Yes, I did. Thought that yeah. was very relevant for Valentine's, Valentine's Day. Valentine's Day. Oh, I think she timed, or her publisher timed the release of the book very well. So, <laughs> and I did. I thought that's smart on my part to also release it around that time. So, and it was a really good book that nobody has a book on that topic. So, she, Cheryl Kirschenbaum found a great uh, topic to write on. Uh, and it's very accessible to the general public. And I think that's one thing that makes a great popular science book. It's not over people's heads. Yeah. And, and people are interested in kissing usually. So <laughs> she found a good topic. Um, but I really then, like then, that your videos are relevant for older and younger um, audiences also. I really like, for instance, your cat one, um, where you figure out how many cats um, will fit in your sink. I mean, it, it appeals to everyone. Uh, well, yeah, unless I guess someone really, really hates cats. Um, but the, <laughs> that, that was just the funny thing, as I explained in the video, my um, somebody on Twitter just said, sent me to this cats and sinks. Uh, I don't, it's just like you click on these images of cats and sinks on end. And I just went, I wonder how many cats can fit in that big sink in my lab. And uh, yeah, it just got me thinking, oh yeah, how would someone solve this? And yeah, how could scientists do this? And then yeah, I brought two of my kids in to help me <laughs> solve it and to handle the cat because I'm allergic. But um, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't <laughs> know that. My voice sounds deeper because it's, uh, it's the allergies. But yeah, I discovered this <laughs> big sink to hold 32 cats. If you could stuff them all in really nice and tight. Um, <laughs> my kids were actually really surprised. And, wow. Um, but, you know, I thought this helps us understand, well, you know, it's impractical to stuff 32 cats in a sink. And it's, sometimes it's impractical to do science, to do the experiment you want to do. You can't get a control climate. You can't, you know, tell the weather to stop one day so you can take some measurements. So, so there are certain um, things you need to sort of explore theoretically. And then things you need to experiment or you start with theory on experiment. So, uh, and I think cats and stuffed animals, yeah, I don't know, just put a little uh, essence of surprise that um, <laughs> make people stop and look. And I think that's what I do with the gummy bears, sort of following up. I know you've done some peep destruction. Yeah, marshmallow peeps. <laughs> marshmallow peep <laughs> destruction. And the gummy bears just... Um, actually became this, uh, what did it become? Uh, it started with a student asking me, can we sonicate a gummy bear? Can we apply high frequency sound waves and see what would happen with a gummy bear? And uh, yeah. in my lab, I just said, sure. You know, we can <laughs> clean the, the ultrasonic probe. And so that was the first video I did along those lines, but then realized, well, we can freeze it. The crystallization one was an accident. Um, you know, so some of these have just come about. I, it's not that I'm out of ideas. I'm just not always sure how, you know, how can I test, you know, the tensile strength of a gummy bear? Do I have access to that equipment and things like that? So I'd, I'd like to continue that. They, they are fun. So where, um, where do you see science education going in the next uh, 10 years and what can people do to help? 
This, this is a really good question because we do, at least right now, we have a president in the White House who is drawing attention to science in the State of the Union address through his uh, Educate to Innovate initiative. So he's at least trying to put this in people's minds and he, you know, even saying, I think science fairs are more important than the Super Bowl, for instance. He hosted Yay. the White House <laughs> Science Fair. Yeah, so even if things don't change right away with him in the White House. He's he's planting a seed. He's standing up there saying, this is important. And um, back in um, when um, India was first liberated from the British, uh, so whenever that was in 1947 or something like that, uh, Prime Minister Nehru came in and he actually put a little plea in the constitution um, that says it shall be the duty of every citizen to develop a scientific temper and I thought, isn't that interesting hmm. um, that an entire nation and, you know, now I look, look at the, the physics and um, engineering department, we do have a lot of Indian students here. So that there is a culture of science um, that does pervade India. I was reading this in a book called Geek Nation. And I thought that that's what we need. We need this something to sort of pervade America, that science is important. Uh, we don't all have to become scientists, but if we had that scientific temper, that way of just sort of looking at the world, uh, it could be very interesting. Uh, Seems like we've lost something since the space race of the 60s and 70s. Yeah, that, that was really motivating that, uh, well, the mindset of America at the time was, well, there are enemies, so we better do something <laughs> about that. We don't, we don't feel that threat anymore, I think, that well, we better um, become more scientific. Uh, to, to gain a place in the world because the world just seems so open and available. So there's really not this idea of competition. So that's, I think that's not going to work to motivate people for science. I think they, they have to grapple with the fact that things they use every day rely on science and engineering. And if there's not people to do this, we're not going to have those things, you know. Mm -hmm. So we're coming to the top of the hour, and uh, I, I can't believe it went by so fast, just like that. Um, so we don't get behind on their schedule here. Um, is there anything last that you would like to uh, say before we close out? Oh, I don't know that there's anything to add, except uh, I hope everybody takes a look at your engineering videos. I really enjoy them. Uh, and I, and I, I just think it's great to, to see someone sitting there saying, oh, you know what, I've got, it's like a MacGyver thing. I've got posters and I've got a barrette and, uh, you know, and I've got some old cord and I'm going to uh, demonstrate something really cool for you. <laughs> well, thank you. I uh, really like uh, demystifying things that people think are complicated, science or um, engineering electronics. So. Yeah, I think it's great Appreciate because you, you take some time and you say, here's the science behind it. The electrons are moving this way. Um, I, it's really motivating. I think it's really important. And, and people look at your setup and think, wow, she, she really knows what she's talking about. And I, I just think that's important. Stop, stop, stop. You're making my head too big. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy your well, videos. Well, thanks for coming on and... Uh, and enduring this, uh, I know I'm not as I'm not as uh, fluent and smooth as Dr. Kiki, but uh, she'll job. be back soon. She'll be back soon. I hope she'll consider bringing you on and uh, discussing uh, some more um, 
Yeah, lots of projects going on. So definitely, definitely. And again, go check out uh, Joanne's website, joannelovescience.com. Well, thank you. Jerry, thank you for inviting me. I'm very happy to be on. And uh, why I don't think I solved all of U.S. science education problems. Um, but yeah, it, uh, the best part of all this, I think, was getting people on Twitter very uh, excited about sharing their favorite science moments. I think that's been my favorite part of this that whole thing. That was great. So we should uh, gather those up and put them somewhere. Maybe we can put them in the show idea. notes. I think that's um, a good idea. Someone even recorded a message for us. I don't know if you saw that, but he described his favorite moment um, with his teacher. It was uh, really touching. Well, and, and people were saying, can I email in my story? And I thought, wow, with the number of tweets, I don't want to see how many emails we get. <laughs> oh, I'd be happy, though, because people are excited about science, at least for the moment. Yes. Well, thank you, Joanne. Thank you. Thank you.